You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. First Corinthians. Here we go. I, I always look forward to new series, but man, I, I'm doubly looking forward to this one. Uh, let me read verses 1 uh, to 9 in chapter 1, and then I'll stop and pray and see if I can get through this with the time that I have. Paul, verse 1, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me pray. Uh, Father, um, as we come to this new series, as we come to today's text, uh, would you take what I've prepared this week and just uh, light it on fire? I don't want to just give another sermon today. I don't. I want to... to meet with you. I I want ministry to take place. I I pray against our enemy, I do, who snatches good things away. I pray against distraction. Um, I pray that I wouldn't be a distraction. May we be open to what you have for us. This is such a sweet, precious, beautiful text. Your Bible is so good. So lead lead us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been uh, pastoring for about 28 years, and uh, over that time I've worked in uh, four different churches. I worked in a church for two years in Coquitlam. Uh, I worked for a church uh, for for 10 years in Burnaby. I worked, worked for a church in Vancouver that I helped plant for 14 years, and I've been with you in this new thing with great joy for two years already. Can you believe that? Two years, Matt. It's gone by gone by fast. Um, I've, I've experienced a, a lot over that time, as you can imagine. Uh, so many good things uh, and a few bad things as well. I've, I've seen amazing moves of the, of the Spirit. I've uh, been awestruck by some things that I've seen. And, and every once in a while, some hard things I've, I've seen too, experienced firsthand. People caught in the crossfire, sad things. Those, those types of things go on too, as we know. Uh, I've also visited a lot of churches, uh, here, there, everywhere. And I've, like you, I've heard amazing stories. And I've heard some tragic stories as well. 
Um, but in all of my experience over the 28 years, all of the places that I've visited, all the stories that I've heard, I have to admit I've never come across a church quite like the church in Corinth. Um, if you pastored the church in Corinth, I don't know how you kept your job, <laughs> quite honestly. If you planted the church in Corinth, I, I think you would have to question your calling. What's going on in the church in Corinth? Well, I don't even know where to begin. If you've read the book, uh, there's so many things to choose from. Uh, church divisions to start. Camps in the church. Uh, nothing worse than camps in the church. They had Peter camps and Apollos' camps, camps and, and Paul camps and the hoity-toity Jesus-only super spiritual camp. I'm so thankful that the church today doesn't have camps. We have lots of camps, especially in this age of the internet. We have, we have many of them. They had them, they had them too. Um, church members were taking each other to court. Brothers who were worshiping together on, on Sundays would see each other in court on Mondays. There was incestual relationships in the church. Uh, a son was in a romantic relationship with Perhaps his stepmom, some even suggest his mom. Sexual immorality outside of that. People in the church were hooking up with prostitutes. That's the church in Corinth. And then you had on the other side of the spectrum, you had people who were married who were living celibate in their marriages. You, you had believing spouses wondering if they shouldn't divorce their non-believing spouse so they could serve Jesus better. That, that's the church in Corinth. And then there was a rift in the church between people who thought eating meat that was sacrificed to idols was okay. Total freedom to do so. And then on the other side, you had people who were very adamant that it wasn't. They couldn't disagree with the other group more. But that's not all. You had idolatry in the church. You had issues between married couples while the worship gathering was going on. You had people, get this, you had people getting drunk at communion. How does that happen? Like how many pieces of bread do you have to dip into the wine before you get drunk, right? How many of those little cups do you have to slug back before you get drunk at communion? We'll try to explain and unpack that uh, when we get there. And then there was arrogance and division over the use of spiritual gifts. Paul writes that that's like an ear and an eye not getting along. So it just doesn't make sense. People were prophesying, people were speaking in tongues, but they weren't loving one another. Paul says you're like a clanging gong. You're a crashing cymbal. Their, their church gatherings were no, not taking any consideration at all for the non-believer who would walk in, the first timer. It was all about them, all about who could get the next word out. And then on top of all of this, in the church, you had people who were wondering, what's the big deal about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What's the big deal about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? They were questioning the importance of that. There, there's more, but I think you get the point. If one or two of those issues was something that you had to deal with in a church, that would be big enough. You would lose sleep over that. But I've just given you a list of, 
I don't know, nine, 10 big, audacious, mind-blowing issues taking place in Corinth. And do you know who planted the church? Paul, exactly. In a weird way, as a church planter, that gives me a, a, little, a little measure of comfort. If he planted that, then, you know, maybe we're not all that bad. But tied to this, the fact that Paul planted the church in Corinth only adds to the issue within the church. Because there are people in the church in Corinth that Paul led to the Lord, that he planted the church with, who were questioning his gifting, his ability, his authority. Why? Because Paul didn't look like a rock star. He didn't look the part. And Corinthians loved their rock stars. Because those individuals, their, their leaders represented them. And Paul, he couldn't speak well. Wasn't a good orator. Couldn't speak well. Didn't look the part. Yeah, he could write a good letter, I guess. But really, whatever happened to those? Okay, thank you, for, thank you for at least listening to me. You're with me. But that's the Corinthian church. I mean, if there was a church that had to get its life together, it was this one, right? I mean, who would even want to be a part of a church like this? With all that going on, why would you want to be a part of a church like that? And why even call it a church? It doesn't even sound like it has any followers of Jesus in it, Right? But maybe before we hammer them too quickly, do you know what the biggest problem with the church in Corinth was? The problem, the underlying problem that led to all of these other problems, the underlying problem, the biggest problem in the church in Corinth was that it was full of Corinthians. Let me see if I can explain this to you. Just to lay the groundwork. Most biblical historians hold that the letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, is the earliest written letter in what we call the New Testament. Meaning, chronologically speaking, it was written before any other letter. The reason why people believe that is because in chapter 15, when Paul is defending the bodily resurrection of Jesus, he says, look, when Jesus rose, he actually appeared to people. Up to 500 people at one time. And then he adds, some of whom are still alive. Meaning, ask them yourselves. Talk to them. Some of them still exist. I went back and did a bit, a, a bit of a dive into the age expectancy, life expectancy of people living in Greece, which is where Corinth is located, in the first century. The average age life expectancy in the first century in Corinth was 41. So when Paul says some of them are still alive, what he is saying is this is front page news. Meaning this letter is written early. Now why is that significant? Well, stay with me. I'm building a case. Go to Acts 18. It'll be on the screen too if you don't have a Bible. But why don't you have a Bible? Acts 18. Let me read verses 1 to 11. This is the beginning stages of this church. This is, the, this is the planting of this church. Let me read the verses for us. After this, 
Paul left Athens where he spoke on Mars Hill and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Note that, we'll come back to it because that's a point in history. And he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. That's always Paul's MO. He would go to cities. He'd go straight to the synagogue. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, meaning this is now how he made his living. He was a tent maker before. Now he's occupied by the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Eustus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. One of the greatest church planting verses in the Bible. Got kicked out of the synagogue. Where are we going to go? Hey, a guy's got a house. Let's meet there. The church is planted in that house. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Praise God. The guy who got who kicked him out comes to Jesus. Fantastic. Believed in, believed in the Lord together. Um, uh, excuse me, let me pick this up. Believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So now we have the launch of the, the church. Here's the church in Corinth. It's planted. It's fantastic. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid because he's opposed. Remember, he's opposed by a, a group of people in Corinth, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, I don't believe Jesus is saying, I have a lot of Christians here. You just don't know them yet. What Jesus, I believe, is saying to Paul is, I have many who have been called by my name before the foundation of the world, and they don't know it yet. And how will they know unless someone preaches? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the words of Christ. And so, Paul, bring the good news. Preach. Teach. Verse 11. And he stayed. A year and six months. Teaching the word of God among them. Okay. Stay with me. Let's do the math together. When did the Jewish people get kicked out of Rome? Well, there's some debate, going back to verse 2, there's some debate, but most historians suggest A.D. 49. Okay, history shows it. A.D. 49. So Priscilla and Aquila, they get kicked out of Rome, Italy, come to Corinth, Greece. They stay there. They meet Paul there. They make tents there. They begin ministry there. Paul's hanging out in the synagogue. Things are going on until they meet some opposition. How long a runway is that? Well, we don't know. We can guess. A couple months, six months. Let's just say six months for argument's sake. They plant the church in, in the house. They build it. It's growing. Jesus comes to Paul in a vision. Stay here. Preach. Teach. Get this thing going. Paul stays there 18 months. So what do you got? Two years? That would take us from 49 to 51. Depends on the time of the year, maybe 52. Paul then leaves and he goes to Ephesus for three years. He, he writes this letter 
while in Ephesus? When? Well, again, some disagreement could have been as early as AD 54 to AD 56. Which would mean what? It would mean that this church is maybe four years old, five years old, six years max. We've been going for two. Meaning it's a baby church, man. But a baby church made up of who? Well, not a bunch of people who transferred in from other churches. Because this is the first one in Corinth. And not a bunch of Bible school grads. Certainly not New Testament Bible school grads, because there ain't one. You had some experts in the Old Testament. That actually is part of the problem that shows up in the church. Because you've got a rift between the Jewish Christians... Jewish people who come to Jesus, and the Gentile, the Greeks that come to Jesus. So you have this church made up of this people, this baby church that have been walking with Jesus for three, four, five years. So you got Jewish Christians, Greek, Greek Christians, a lot, of, a lot of things not in common. Yes, they all come to Jesus, but one other thing that they had in common, all of them is that they were Corinthians. Many of them... I think we can assume raised in Corinth, in the culture of Corinth. They were Corinthianized. They were from that city. What do we know of Corinth? Well, great city. Not so much today. It's gone down in size. You can still visit it. But at the time, illustrious. 600,000 people at the time lived there. Vancouver, proper, 600,000 people. You can make a buck in Corinth. It was on a major passageway, a lot of trade there. But in Greece at the time, huge difference between the haves and the have-nots. So the, the rich were very rich and the poor were very poor. Church of great idolatry, or excuse me, a city of great idolatry, the temple to Diana was located there. She was the, te- uh, the goddess of the womb, goddess of, of birthing. Lot of temple prostitution. Highly sexualized city. To Corinthianize became language to, to describe promiscuous, sexualized, licentious behavior. Image was huge in Corinth. It was, it was huge in, in Greece. Wisdom and thought and power were high values of the culture. Paul writes in verse 22 of the same chapter we're in, Greeks seek wisdom. They love it, man. And so what you had at the time is you had these itinerant speakers who would travel from city to city to city and people would gather around them and they would enamor the crowds with their rhetoric and people would sit there transfixed and these Speakers who could speak well, very eloquent, were treated and paid like rock stars. Which helps us understand why they had such a tough time with Paul, because he didn't look the part. He didn't sound the part. And that wasn't good enough because they were Corinthians. So that's Corinth. That's who made up this church. Corinthians 
who had been walking with Jesus for maybe a handful of years. How would you describe a church? How do you think you would describe a church with people like that? What kind of church would it be? Can I suggest that it would be very messy? Uh, a number of years ago, I was down in Los Angeles, and I went to a church called Mosaic, uh, started by a guy named Erwin McManus. Um, uh, some of you may know the name. I don't land everywhere where he lands, um, not that he cares, uh, but very, he's on the same team, and he was very, very helpful to me uh, early on, read a number of his books that were very encouraging to me. But in the, um, in the, in the message that I heard that day, uh, partway through he said, uh, two things should mark a healthy church. And I'm like, all right, here it is. Talk to me, Irwin. The first thing is heresy. Okay, what's, what's the second? Sexual immorality. And I thought, maybe he misspoke. Maybe he meant to say unhealthy. He said, no. Heresy, sexual immorality. And then he went on to explain, because if your church is healthy, and it's on mission, and it's reaching people in your city, and they come into your ministry, they're not going to come as Bible school grads. They're not going to come with a systematic theology. They're not going to come with the pillars of the faith, bedrock. They're going to come in and they're going, what's the big deal about the resurrection of Jesus? Why is that important? That he rose bodily? Why is that important? They'll bring in questions like that. Sexual immorality? If they're adults and they've been raised in this city, what are they going to bring in? They're going to bring in questions like, why can't I still hook up with my girlfriend on Friday night? Like, why? Why can't I do that? Do you know what marks an unhealthy church? A bunch of navel-gazing Christians who... who get together arguing about Bible translations and how long were the days in Genesis 1 and whether Adam and Eve had a belly button. <laughs> right? that's, that, that's what an unhealthy church looks like. Like that's unhealthy. I, I used to think that the church in Corinth was an unhealthy church. I don't think that anymore. It was certainly a messy church. No doubt about it. And over the months ahead, Paul will address the mess. But what I believe now is that the church in Corinth is what the church should look like when it's on mission and making Jesus known in the city in which it exists. It's messy. But what a beautiful mess. I want to be a Corinthian church. And I want us to want to be a Corinthian church. Before looking at our text, and we'll get there eventually, um, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
Let me show you a couple of verses. They'll be on the screen as well, but encourage me, encourage me by flipping in your Bibles. I love hearing it. 1 Corinthians 3, um, convicting verses. Let me read them for you. Paul writes here, but I, verse 1, but I, brothers, sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. In Christ. These are Christians. They are in Christ. Paul makes that very clear. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still in the flesh. But here's the thing. He calls them infants in Christ. We just did the math. They were infants in Christ. Three, four-year-old Christians, perhaps. And yet Paul seems to think that three, four, five years or so is plenty of time to move from drinking milk to, milk to eating solid spiritual food. So why is this convicting to me? It's convicting to me and it should be convicting to you because we know people in our lives who have been walking with Jesus for 30 or 40 years, man, that are still drinking milk and, and still walking according to the flesh. And I know some would say, well, if they're in the flesh, walking according to the flesh for 30 or 40 years, then they aren't a Christian. Perhaps. Perhaps. My response, though, is that if you are an infant in Christ, then you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and therefore you have been sealed and secured until the day of Christ Jesus. But my point this morning is not to argue salvific insurance, assurance with you, but to simply point out that for us to be on mission means that the messiness of the Corinthians needs to be our messiness too, and perhaps their messiness isn't as bad as we think when compared to ours. Something to think about. Why don't we look at our text? 1 Corinthians 1. 1 to 9. Here's what I want to do at the time that I have left. I want to answer one question. How, look at verse 4. How does Paul say in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you and mean it? <laughs> and say it with integrity. Knowing what he knows of the church, especially knowing what he knows some of them see him as in the church. I thank God always for you. What did he see in them? What did he know of them? What did he know of God's relationship to him, to them that allowed him to say that? But here's the thing, application time, what do we need to see in each other? What do we need to know of each other? What do we need to know of God's relationship to us? Well, let's take a look. One at a time, three of them. First, Paul saw God's work in them. He saw God's activity in them. I have a note in the margin of my Bible, this Bible, an older Bible of mine, uh, of something a speaker said connected to these nine verses uh, a number of years ago. He said, Paul saw God's call on the Corinthians over the, over the deficiencies of the Corinthians. He didn't ignore their deficiencies. That's the rest of the letter. 
he just pointed out at the start something greater than their deficiencies. And this shows up in Paul's use of the word call. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 1. Paul called, there's our word, we'll come back to it, by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. If you have a lisp, the worst name in the world. Called by the will of God to be an apostle. Apostle. Sent one. That's what it means. But Paul isn't simply saying that he's a sent one. He's speaking of authority here. He was called to be an apostle by the will of God of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is doing right out of the gate is writing, saying to the recipients of this letter, look, I have authority. Paul has that same authority today, by the way. We, we, we sit under the apostolic teaching. Sosthenes, um, we don't know who he is. We just know he's with Paul. We can guess, but we don't know for sure. And probably Paul dictated this letter to him, which was very common practice at the time. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, word means cleaned up. Uh, sanctified can mean different things depending on the context of when it's used, but here you're cleaned in Christ. Clean in Christ Jesus, called. There's our word again. We'll come back to that as well. To be saints. Hagios, holy, specifically as we've talked about here, set apart. Set apart by Jesus, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this letter is for you too. Both their Lord and ours. Just stop there. You know what an expat is? I think most of us know what an expat is. Ex expatriate. It's a citizen from one country living somewhere else. So you're from Canada, you're living in London, you're an expat. Expat language shows up in verse 2. When Paul addresses the church of God in Corinth. Two addresses. We, the church, are God's. The church is God's. And our citizenship is with God in heaven but we live here now. We're the church of Vancouver. In Van, excuse me. Yeah, we're the church of God in Vancouver. And what that invites is messiness. Because sometimes we bring Corinth into the church more than we bring the church into Corinth. You know what I mean? And that gets messy. That's really the gist of this letter. You could sum it up that way. And, and in that messiness, it can get tempting to flee, can it? Wrap ourselves up in bubble wrap, buy a commune, only shop at places that have the fish symbol on it. That's how we'll protect ourselves. But, but that's not what we've, what we've been called to. That's not, in fact, what we've been empowered for. Let, let me show you. Hang a right again. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, again, it'll be on the screen if you don't want to flip there. Chapter 5 is where Paul addresses that icky relationship between the son and the mom or the stepmom. And in verse 9, he writes, I wrote to you in my letter. So there's a, a letter before this letter. We just don't know where it is. Nobody has it. I wrote to you in my former letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Okay, that's what he wrote in the first letter. 
Then he adds here, because there's been confusion. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and, or, and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. And Paul is like, that doesn't make any sense. The world is the mission field. I, I need you to go there. You've been empowered to go there. That's who you are to associate with. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say in verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who hears, bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, and so on. Not, not even to eat with such a one. We've sort of flipped this upside down today. Where we, we ignore the sin of the one who calls themselves brother and still associate and hide from the one who needs Jesus who is living the same lifestyle. Paul said, that doesn't make sense. There's, there's one more mention of calling in, in our intro text in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Got to read that plural. This is a church in fellowship with the son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So three calls. Paul was called by the will of God. Verse one, they were called to be saints. Verse two, and they were called into the fellowship of the son. Verse, verse nine. Why am I emphasizing this? Because they were called by God, not invited. Called and commissioned by God. This is God's doing. We, see, we have introduced a lexicon today in the church that has sort of watered this down. We, see, we talk about inviting Jesus into our hearts. We, we talk about making a, a decision to follow Jesus. We talk about choosing to follow Jesus. And I understand what we're doing with the language. And I'm not saying that we necessarily have to get rid of the language. As long as we understand that we wouldn't invite. And we wouldn't decide. And we wouldn't choose to follow Jesus unless God called us first. Jesus calls his sheep by name. And the sheep hear his voice. Paul knew that to be the case with the Corinthians as it is with all of those who in every place call on the name of Jesus. And, and what he does here in his letter is he begins his letter by reminding, reminding them of it. That their salvation, here's the sweetness of it. Their salvation doesn't rest on them. It's, it's a divine activity. It's a work of God in them. And why this is so sweet at the beginning as we go forward is that there are no deficiencies in us apart from unbelief that can undermine his call. You see, this is not so much theological, although it certainly is. It's pastoral. He's coming to a messy church. And he said, I see God's call on you. <laughs> it's sweet. But Paul didn't only see God's work in them, he saw God's grace 
on them. This takes us back to verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So why does Paul thank God always? Not because they were perfect, but because they weren't. And, and God's grace has been poured out on them. Grace that what? Well, grace that led to their salvation, certainly. But grace that enabled their sanctification, cleaned them up. And grace to be called saints, set apart ones. And then grace in verse 5, enabling them to be enriched in, in all speech and knowledge. And because of that grace, verse 7, they were not lacking in any spiritual gift as they wait for the revealing of their Lord Jesus Christ. What does that tell us? It tells us Midtown, and so many are confused in this. It tells us that grace is not a one-time gift, but an ongoing, lifelong life source for us. I mean, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace who have already received grace and peace, who will continue to receive grace and peace until they see Jesus again. All by way of God the Father through their Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace, but what saves us, sustains us, until we see Jesus. It's very possible to come to this letter, start reading it, and, and laser in on the sin and the messiness and the crud and the deficiencies that we see in the Corinthians first. Paul saw them, he will address them, and we will address them too. But what he saw first was God's work in them and God's grace on them. And, and my ask is, can we commit to doing the same? Can we have eyes to see the grace of God, the work of God in each other's lives? And can we point it out? Can we come to this ministry or come to a community group or when you go out for coffee or a beer with somebody and you're sitting across from them, can you point out the evidences of God's grace in them? I see this in you. I see this growth in you. Or when you did that, man, that was just evidence of the Spirit working in you. Do you know why we should do that? We should do that, number one, because it brings glory to God. I thank God always for you. It brings glory to him. But we also need to do it because we so often fail to see God's grace and work in ourselves. All we see is our failings and imperfections. Let's be that kind of ministry. When you, when you show up at your CG this week, before you leave, two minutes of ministry, pull somebody aside. Man, thank you. Or man, bless you. That was huge. Thank you for that. Thanks for encouraging me. Boy, I see that in you. Before you leave here on a Sunday, in the, in the lobby, man, I love, I, I love you. This, I saw this. You did this. Just bless, bless, bless. Don't flatter. Don't exaggerate. Have eyes to see God's work. 
and build them up. We've got to wrap up. Paul, however, didn't only see God's work and God's grace, but one more thing for today. He was also assured of God's faithfulness towards them. Look at verse 8. God in Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God in Christ will sustain them to the end. It's a, it's a God activity. God will do it. God will sustain them to the end. And if you're in Christ, the promise is God will sustain you to the end and present you what? Guiltless at the day of Christ Jesus. Guiltless. Not this church. This church? Sort of guiltless. Maybe forgiven. No. Guiltless. No guilt. There is no condemnation. None. For those who are in Christ Jesus. How can Paul be so sure? How can you and I be so sure? Look at verse 9. God is faithful. <laughs> so good. God is faithful. And it, and it was this faithful God by whom you were called. You were called by a faithful God into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not called by any old God, Midtown. Called by, called by a faithful God who promises to sustain them to the end and present them guiltless at the day of Christ Jesus. Why? For he who calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. Take it to the bank. His word never returns void. He is faithful to his promises and in that way, always faithful towards us. What a way to start a letter. That was loud. What a way to start a letter. I'm fired up. Love this. Love this book. But what a great God. May, may we be faithful people. For our faith is a fruit of the work and grace of God in us. But let us be a people, most of all, who don't rest our assurance on our faithfulness, but on his. For we must. Because until we see him face to face, we're a messy people. Messy people. Uh, sometime in the next millennium, we're going to get to chapter 9, where, where Paul will defend his apostleship. Um, this again is on the screen, but if you want to read it for yourselves, verses 1 and 2, just notice what Paul says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Wow. They're your workmanship? This church, Paul? Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. <coughs> I, I said at the beginning that if you planted this church, you'd probably question your calling. <laughs> Paul does the exact opposite. 
And he says that this church, where his workmanship, this church is the seal of his apostleship. It verifies that he's an apostle. How can he say that? Well, to borrow from someone else, they seal his apostleship based on how he related to them in spite of the messiness of them. May, may God grant us the grace to do the same. As I close and we go into a time of response, I read an article this week um, on the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. The, the writer summed up uh, these verses this way. Jesus did all the work and we receive all the benefits. And I thought about it. I said, yes. G God in Jesus calls us. He cleans us. He gives us sainthood. He enriches us. He gifts us. He sustains us. And he will present us guiltless on the day he returns. Jesus does all the work. We receive all his benefits. But as we go into this meal of remembrance, let's remember that our call comes because Jesus was abandoned. And we are clean because he took our filth. And we're sainted because he became sin. And we're enriched because he became poor. And we're sustained because he stumbled to the cross. And we're guiltless because he hung, condemned, cursed on a tree. As we eat, let's remember that's the work of Jesus so that all of these benefits would be ours. Yes? Let me pray. Ah, oh, Jesus. Bless you. Thank you. Uh, our Father in heaven, we thank you that through Jesus, in Jesus, in Christ, all of these benefits are ours. All of them. With the great assurance that you, God, in Christ will sustain us to the end. And at the end of the day, we will be presented guiltless because of what you did, Jesus. Ah, oh, we praise you. We worship you. We thank you. And as we remember you by way of this meal, I pray that this would be sweet time, that you would be pleased in this time. I pray, Holy Spirit, that if ministry work needs to take place, that people would be obedient to your touch and sensitivity and work in them, all of us, in us, before we partake. And that as we do eat, this just wouldn't be a part of the gathering, 
but this would be a time of remembrance of what you did for us and that this is the only ground we stand on. This is common ground for us. Common meal, common ground, common people because of Jesus. You, Jesus. I thank you. We love you. We love you. We thank you for your word. Thanks for speaking to us today by way of it. In Jesus, your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.